You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. All right, friends. Thanks for being here today. I know you didn't have many choices, so I'm not going to be too flattered by this. But uh, let, us, let us pray together. Oh, Lord, we're so grateful to be your children and thankful for your grace to us through Jesus Christ. We ask that you would be with us now. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would move among us um, as we hear the story of your work in one person's life. In your name we pray. Amen. Yeah, so on this kind of off week, I, it, uh, Andrew encouraged me that it might be a great thing for me to share what brought me to the Advent. I'm past my one-year anniversary, which I'm very excited about, because the first year is always the craziest year, is you all get to know me and I get to know you, but I'm also not, uh, you know, I'm not confused or under any kind of cloud of uh, opaqueness that you, you all know me that well, or I know you that well, because I think it takes years for a pastor and a congregation to connect, and I'm so grateful for the chances I've had to teach here and to connect with you even beyond our worship services and connect with you individually as you have loved my family so well this past year. But I wanted to be able to kind of share and testify what brought me to the Advent, and hopefully it's more than just some sort of kind of expose and boring, but really maybe you all can see some touch points uh, in your own lives. I want to do this more in the form of a testimony, a kind of spiritual travelogue, which makes a lot of sense because just this past week, I mean, two days ago, I was standing and walking the streets of Cambridge, London, and Oxford for the first time in my life. I've never been there. And uh, it was a great gift to be able to go for a week. I was there with a very specific mission. I was not a tourist. Uh, I was there to study, and I was there to look at the sites of the English Reformation. So I just a few highlights, I got to, uh, to walk around Cambridge and enter those very rooms where the English reformers were taught. I got to stand uh, on the lawn where one of the English reformers, even though he was in the church his whole life, would say that's the moment he became a Christian. He was standing overlooking the River Cam, uh, looking back on his college at Trinity Hall, and he was reading from Erasmus's Latin translation of Paul. And he read, this is a true and trustworthy saying, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And one could say that that was the experiential start of the English Reformation. Because a, a short man by the name of Thomas Bilney was reading that, that passage of scripture. And he found Jesus. Jesus found him. He heard the gospel for the first time. And the Holy Spirit came to him and ignited something there. I got to stand in the church where reformers like Martin Bootser and Thomas Cranmer preached. I got to stand in the church at Oxford next to the pillar where Cranmer was placed on a platform before going to his execution and was supposed to give a speech on what everyone thought was going to be his recantation of his Protestant faith and his affirmation of uh, the established church's teaching. And he shocked everyone by beginning to speak fondly of the gospel and the power of Jesus. And he didn't even the story goes, get to finish before they drug him off that platform. And then I got to walk that distance where they drug him 
to his execution and look and stand at the place in the pavement where there's a very humble stone cross put into the placement where he and Latimer and Ridley, these English reformers, were executed. And it was pretty powerful. In fact, it was a very public place now where they were executed, even though it was on the edge of town and in a, in a heap at the time, such that there's a coffee shop, people are walking by, people are biking by, Cranmer's execution site. And I almost wanted to tackle every last person that was just riding a bike over the grave of Cranmer, you know? But I thought, ah, you know, it's actually fitting that um, a man would sort of be stuck in these humble means. Those are just a few highlights of the many. I got to walk through the Tower of London and see where um, a few of the great queens of England who believed the gospel were executed. Anne Boleyn and uh, the nine-day queen, Lady Jane Grey. Read about her sometime, her intellect. Uh, it was incredible. So, and it's, a, it's fitting that on the heels of that that I come and share my story of what brought me to the Advent. And it's really going to be a kind of whole life story in a way, and I hope that we've got some time for questions. But I wanted to begin by reading to you Article 17 of the Articles of Faith, which are part of the formularies of the Episcopal Church and part of the formularies of the Anglican tradition of Christianity. And at first it might sound weird that I'm reading this, but it's on predestination. Um, and listen to the way that the English reformers speak about this doctrine that tends to get people all arguing about stuff. Predestination to life is the everlasting purpose of God, whereby before the foundations of the world were laid, he hath constantly decreed by his counsel secret to us to deliver from curse and damnation those whom he hath chosen in Christ out of mankind and to bring them by Christ to everlasting salvation as vessels made to honor. There is the doctrine. Now listen to the way they frame the doctrine. As the godly consideration of predestination and our election in Christ is full of sweet, pleasant, and unspeakable comfort to godly persons and such as feel in themselves the working of the Spirit of Christ. As I share with you how I got to the Advent and what in the world I'm doing here, I want to say that it's all because of this powerful providence of God, which for me over the course of my life, and hopefully for you, Christian, over the course of your life, is full of sweet comfort, is full of that joy of knowing that the Spirit has led you and that you felt the Spirit of God working at various times in your life. And even as I was preparing to share this with you, I was kind of blown away by the faithfulness of our God who superintends all things well for his name and for his glory. So I want to share with you things that God taught me and did to me along the way toward coming to the Advent and then put it all together in hopefully a way that makes sense of why in the world Zach Hicks is here pastoring and living among you. Um, I grew up in Hawaii, right? So one would think that the destination of Alabama isn't obvious, all right? Um, I will say, though, Southerners, that Hawaii is the southernmost state in the Union. So if there's anyone who can claim Southern heritage, it's me. Uh, and actually, it goes deeper than that. My mom is a native of Gunnersville, Alabama. She grew up there. That's where uh, she was raised, the daughter of a poor cotton farmer. Um, and so coming back is a strange sense, even though I've never lived here before now. I'm feeling things in the culture that feel like home to me. And I'm a little shocked by it and pleased by it because I, I feel in my blood that evidently I'm a southerner that's returning to my roots, even though I don't have the accent. And, 
probably don't have some of the manners, which please forgive me, I'm working on it. We're working with our kids, okay? Um, what I learned uh, from my godly parents who raised me in the fear of the Lord and in a wonderful little Baptist church, uh, they, they raised me in this church from the time I was two until the time I graduated high school. We never church shopped. We never moved on. And in about 18 years of a church's existence, you can bet, especially if any of you have been around the Advent or anywhere else for that length of time, that it went through ups and downs. And I would say that at the beginning of my journey, one of the greatest gifts my parents gave to me as a Christian was commitment to a local church to stick it out there through thick and thin, through good times and bad times, through various ministers, through the time when the church was booming and was the happening place on the island, yes, the island, or when it was, uh, when it was that place where there weren't that many people there. My parents stuck it through, and they made me, as a result of that, a churchman, someone who just loves the local church. And I will tell you, as I came back from England and after a long vacation with my family, I'm so grateful to be back here. I love this place, and I love you, and I love the ministry of the Advent in Birmingham. As I was driving in and looking at the city, I was just praying for the city again, thanking God that we have this ministry here. And I would say, that's sort of the beginning of that. And the other thing that my parents really taught me uh, from an early age, I have vivid memories as a young kid standing in worship with my parents. And this is, I think, something that I think parents should take to the bank about how you model what it's like to experience worship. But um, I remember looking up at my mom during hymn singing and during times when the pastor was preaching. And I could see tears streaming down her face as she's singing these glorious truths about the gospel, as she's hearing the gospel preached to her. And I will tell you that formed me deeply and has left an indelible mark that taught me this reality about worship. And it's what I bring to the Advent and have discovered here is that worship is supposed to be moving. That when God speaks and God's word works in worship, it's, it's not just mere ritual. <laughs> it's ritual that moves. It's ritual that shapes. And I learned that from watching tears stream down my mom's face. It's something I've taken with me that worship is, in, to use a bigger word, an affective experience, right? So uh, when I became a teenager, up until that time as a kid, I'd always thought I wanted to be an architect. I loved drawing. I loved angles. I loved precision. I loved being anal about stuff. You know, and so architects, they're like that, right? If any of you are architects. And I thought that's what I wanted to be. And then I went on a youth retreat, started reading the scriptures and meditating on the scriptures. And in a nearly audible voice, but not quite audible, I heard God say to me, I want you to drop whatever you thought you were going to do in your future. And I want you for pastoral ministry. So go ahead and uh, fight me. But this is my plan for you. I heard that and I said, um... I read in the Bible people who fought you, and it didn't go that well. So I think I'll try to yield on the front end. And in 10th grade, grade, I went before my church and committed my life to pastoral ministry. Um, And really from there, it's only been a kind of steady trajectory of seeking and pursuing that ministry. I learned in my teenage years to kind of flowering what my parents taught me, that I experienced worship for myself as intensely emotional. And I learned that that wasn't a bad thing, to experience worship deeply from the inside and to allow those tears to stream down your face as you sing about the cross, as you sing about the resurrection that defeated death for me. I remember being moved time and again. I remember back to when I uh, first articulated faith 
as a seven-year-old boy in my church, just being moved to tears um, under conviction of my own sin in the way that my seven-year-old mind could grasp. I remember going forward before my church because we had altar calls, you know, as a Baptist church. And so I went forward, and I was just weeping. And um, I was weeping because I knew I was a sinner, and I needed Jesus. And I heard that Jesus was there for me, and that Jesus died on a cross for my sins. And I didn't understand the metaphysics or the, the deep theology behind that, but I was one sinner who understood that I couldn't do it. I can't pull myself up by my own bootstraps, and I need Jesus. And um, so when it came to coming to the ministry, I knew that that's what God was calling me to, was to a deeper relationship with him in that regard and to tell others about that. And I'll say during my teenage years, I learned, and I promise this is getting to, I promise this is getting to why I'm here at the Advent. There'll be this like Mr. Miyagi aha moment as we wax on and wax off together. Um, I learned as a teenager some wonderful evangelical habits of piety. Like my church taught me to read the scriptures and to read it and to hear God's voice there. They taught me to meditate on the scriptures, to memorize scripture. I'd say that during that time in my life, I memorized more scripture than I did. And one of the passages that stuck out to me, this should start to ring a bell and tether, was this, this passage from Matthew 11 that I memorized. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will refresh you. That was one of the passages of scripture I memorized on a, on a retreat in the mountains. You know, one of my favorite psalms as a teenager was the psalm appointed for today, Psalm 149. We didn't use it in uh, the 9 o'clock service. We will at the 11. Psalm 139 is one of the best psalms out there if you're just in need of remembering that God intimately cares for you and is acquainted with you intimately and knows everything. He stitched you together in your mother's womb. You know, it's an incredibly powerful thing to feel like your God is that close to you and cares that much about you. And I'd say that during my teenage years, I just learned what it meant to listen to the voice of God and to feel his sweet fatherly comfort. When I got to college, uh, I went to a place called Biola University. It was an evangelical Christian university in Los Angeles. And uh, there I studied music and Bible. Um, And so I'll talk about the Bible piece first. I would say that up until that moment, my faith was like a big tree with very fancy leaves on it. Very expressive, very emotive, but didn't really have many roots. When I got to college, I took a class that normally bores other students, but I would say, lit me on fire. And it was a hermeneutics class. You're saying, Herman who? Hermeneutics. It's the study of how to interpret the scriptures. And I learned how to read the Bible well, to read in big chunks, to listen for the author's voice, both divine and human to learn how to exegete another big word, to understand what the scriptures are saying. And I'll tell you that lit me on fire to be able to to read the scriptures more deeply. Hermeneutics was not boring to me. It changed my faith. I took theology classes that blew my mind about the grandeur and magnificence of God as I studied these deep doctrines for the first time. I found myself, my emotionally charged faith self, just worshiping in the classroom as my theology professor would talk about uh, God's omnipotence and his omniscience and his omnipresence. I just found myself wanting to sing immortal, invisible, God only wise. In fact, God only wise. In fact, it was at the end of every theology class that our professor had us sing a hymn. And that was really the first time that I got a clear message of how 
Hymns shape our faith, teach us and catechize us in doctrine, right? And how a connection to these hymns is one of the best things we can give to educate our church about theology, but also to experience God for all that he is in worship. Um, I studied classical music and um, sang opera and art songs. I sang in The Marriage of Figaro and The Magic Flute and just dove deep into classical music, fell in love with traditional music, you know, classical music heritage. I fell in love with the choral tradition. We sang great choral music in college. We toured all over the place, and I just, I just learned to love that stuff. And interestingly, if you're a, a music major and you're studying music history, if you're studying music history honestly, which some institutions don't, but if you're studying it honestly, you start to realize you're studying church history. And so what I realized as I was studying early music history was that God was in the midst of all that, working in his church. And so I was studying all these ancient composers and pieces and realizing that uh, these were aspects of worship. And so for me, coming from a tradition that didn't really tether itself much to history, it was always sort of reinventing itself every generation to be contextual, I found the historical expression of church music and liturgy for the first time buried in my music education. It sent me on a different path. Uh, as I was studying doctrine, I was becoming interested in the doctrines of grace, becoming interested in Reformed theology and Reformation theology. And it brought me to, um, to a, a particular church in Southern California called Irvine Presbyterian Church. And it was at that church that I encountered liturgy for the first time. And I found something for and in my faith in this liturgy that I'd never experienced before, but for me, after studying the scriptures and studying history, it was like coming home. I heard for the first time in worship an opportunity to confess my sin and then to hear from the minister the very words of God telling me that there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. In worship, I was rehearsing these rhythms of the gospel that if you're a lifelong Episcopalian, you know all too well in our liturgy as Anglicans. And uh, this, it, was, it was remarkable. Worship was moving to me in this time with this liturgy. And uh, it was very traditional worship. It was, it was a choir uh, led by a choir master, and it was um, a really gifted choir master who played the piano. And it was the most be- beautiful, moving worship I had sat in and experienced in a long time. That was when I was dating my wife, and we were both attending this church And I was just weeping through every service as we were singing hymns, as the choir was singing the scriptures over us, as we were experiencing this rhythm of the gospel week in and week out. I just found myself so starved for this in my own life. And that's where I fell in love with liturgy. I did an internship there under the choir master. And one of the things he gave me was this, a book of common prayer. Now, that might sound weird to you that a Presbyterian would give an emerging Presbyterian a book of common prayer. But I, we both had a love for this kind of stuff, and he knew it. And that's where I started scouring this book and learning more about it and falling in love with it. It was my first exposure to all these things. It was my first exposure to Evensong and Vesper services. What I would say is good traditional worship. <laughs> because there's good and there's bad, uh, right? And thankfully, I was exposed to the good. Uh, I went on to seminary in Denver, and went with my wife. We had gotten married and decided we both wanted to study at seminary. She got a counseling degree, and I got a degree in divinity, which the Master of Divinity degree is a messed up name. 
who masters the divine, right? Like, you really said, I have a master of divinity. I have figured out God, right? Like, that's what I feel like I've said. So I just feel like every time I say I have a master of divinity, I need to repent and go, you know, confession and absolution, that sort of thing. But I went there, and a lot of people say, or at least I've heard some people say that seminary is like cemetery. You go to spiritually die because you end up in the weeds of theology and studying the Bible, and you sort of lose the fire of your faith. That was not my experience, I will tell you. Seminary was one of the most resurrective times of my life. I studied the scriptures and got to do it without any kids. We didn't have kids yet. So I got to just sort of immerse myself. And anybody who's trying to go through seminary with kids knows it's a completely different deal, right? Uh, And so my wife and I, and because we were both studying at the same time, there wasn't this sort of griping that we weren't spending enough time with each other because we both went on dates and studied. So uh, that was wonderful. It was very romantic as we were both opening a book, looking into each other's eyes and experiencing uh, the glory of all that. I got to be part of a, a Presbyterian church plant up in North Denver for five years. And I got the opportunity as the worship leader and a pastoral intern to shape the liturgy of this flock that was emerging from nowhere. So had no, you know, apart from uh, reformed heritage, had no sort of preconceived notions of who it was and its identity as a church, which now that I think about it, you know, as a 22, 23-year-old, being able to shape the liturgy of a church, like, why should I have done that? I mean, that was, I don't don't know why God allowed me to do that, but he did. And it taught me a lot about how worship shapes people. I found that the worship services that I was planning and the uh, liturgical decisions I was making was having an impact on people's discipleship. The way they walked with Jesus started to mirror what the liturgy looked like. And I found that a really scary thing, that I had that kind of power. And that made me go deeper into studying other people who had crafted liturgies, other people who had gone before and thought through the integration of biblical theology with worship. I also learned from this time, uh, I was exposed for the first time in the early 2000s to... um, what it looked like for Christianity to be truly gospel-centered. I was exposed to the preaching and the writing of Tim Keller. It was a large part of the culture of our church and our church plant. And that, that just blew, that was another moment of a kind of second conversion for me, I felt like. Because I heard for the first time uh, that contrary to maybe the evangelical vision I was given, that the gospel is not just an entry ticket into the faith and then you're supposed to work really hard until you die and go be with Jesus. But that the gospel really is not just the ABC of the Christian faith, and then you move beyond to the D through Z. The gospel is the A to Z. You never go beyond the gospel. You only go more deeply into it. One could say that growth in the Christian life looks like understanding, believing, and cherishing. Jesus' work for you throughout the course of your life and coming to understand that, which is why I started, for me, God started putting the pieces together of this is what needs to be preached from pulpits, This is what needs to be said and emphasized in worship, right? As I started to sort of hear the gospel afresh in the scriptures, I came to the realization that this was what I, this is the hill that I want to die on in ministry, this gospel hill. Other hills I don't want to die on, but I want to die on the hill of the gospel, and I learned it at this church plant. I went on to serve another church in Denver for another five years. It was called Cherry Creek Presbyterian Church. I was ordained to the gospel ministry there. Uh, And it was a church that sought to do worship and music well in a variety of ways. So it was a church that 
straddled contemporary and traditional expressions, and I loved it all. And I had the opportunity eventually to oversee it all and to work with our organist and choir master and to work with other folks. And it was a very powerful time of um, being kind of a true, coming to fruition of, of ordained ministry. After that, God called me to a place that I never thought, being from Hawaii, okay? I'm just, forgive me if you're from Florida, but being from Hawaii, Florida is like the ghetto Hawaii, okay? <laughs> Why would anyone from Hawaii ever think that moving to Florida would be a good idea? The beaches there compared to Hawaii, unappealing, okay? Just, I, I know many of us vacationed there, and I did, and I fell in love with the place too. But that was my judgmental, you know, Hawaii sort of uh, perspective going into that. And I moved all the way to the southern tip of Florida, about as far away as I could get from home besides like Maine or Alaska or somewhere else and still be in the United States. Although if any of you have been to South Florida recently, you will know it doesn't feel like the rest of the United States, Right? Uh, Fort Lauderdale, Miami, those areas I would describe as like a conglomerate. Uh, if, uh, if Cuba, South America, Las Vegas, New York had a baby, that would be South Florida, okay? <laughs> That's what it was like. And it was awesome. It was multicultural. People, it's the opposite of the South. People are actually, they like to be rude and disrespectful. Uh, and so I often saw fingers on the road that I didn't want to see. I often heard honking. I mean, that was a major... We're shocked when we moved here and people let you in when you put your blinker on and are trying to move one. That does not... In, if they see your blinker, that's a sign to speed up and crowd you out. And so you have to fight for it, right? More pedestrian fatalities in South Florida than anywhere else in the world, or at least in the United States, right? So just dangerous, fun, exciting time of ministry. Um, it was at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale, uh, where God brought to me uh, a, a further flowering of what it meant to be gospel-centered. And it was this vision of the Protestant reformers, of what Luther and others would call the distinction between law and gospel. My understanding of that blossomed for the first time as I read works of people who were influencing our church at that time, one of the, the people that I met who was deeply influencing our church at that time, and now we're going to see the threads come together, was a man by the name of Paul Zoll. And I read Grace in Practice, and Paul often came to Coral Ridge to preach and to speak at conferences that we had. And I got to know Paul and his sons, Simeon, John, David, uh, and got more connected with those things and fell in love more deeply with this gospel-centered vision for a church, particularly as it's expressed through the Reformation distinction between law and gospel, which I know needs definition, and I'm not going to do it right now, but is definitely a part of the fabric of the Advent. It also solidified for me a particular philosophy of the pulpit, that the pulpit wasn't there to, to browbeat people, to do more and try harder, that the Christian pulpit doesn't exist to tell sinners how they're supposed to be better Christians. That the pulpit has a very specific job description. And that that job description is to proclaim Christ crucified. To proclaim Christ resurrected. To proclaim the gospel. Christ and Christ alone. Right? And it's a very sacred thing. And so when I come into our pulpit, and if you go up there and you see a little plaque that's on that pulpit that Paul's all put there, it says this. And it's a warning to us preachers. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. I came under conviction of that woe when I was in South Florida. I was, it was emerging. It was a part of my, 
my DNA at that point, but it, it just sunk in. It sunk in in a new way. It sunk in in a very powerful way. So I want to pause here, and I want to rehearse these threads and then make an observation. This is kind of the wax on, wax off moment. Themes and threads. Emotionally affective worship. You know, worship that engages the heart. That was a part of my biography. Passionate commitment to the scriptures. A desire to just know and drink from the well of the word of God more and more. Liturgy in the Reformation tradition. Structures of worship that rehearsed the gospel. Gospel centrality, and particularly the distinction between law and gospel, and worship governed by justification by faith alone. These are streams in my biography. And right around this point, though I had heard of him before, I met a man who I felt like was a compatriot in all those things. That man had been dead for about 500 years, and his name is Thomas Cranmer. And I met him because I started a doctoral work at Knox Seminary um, and studied, and I'm still studying particularly the theology and worship of the English Reformation. And I met Cranmer, and I saw in Cranmer a desire to think about worship and life and faith from all these angles coming together. And I found someone probably even more deeply than the other reformers of Calvin and Luther, someone who wanted to bring all these things together in worship. And as I read him and I listened to him and as I studied his liturgy and what he was trying to accomplish in the 16th century, I said, that's what you brought me here for in this time and this place, God. And it just so happened that I was going through this doctoral work with a guy named Gil Cracky who was also on this same path of doing the same degree with me. And Gil and I would sit in many classes together, and he'd, Gil's a more quiet and wise and humble guy than I am. I tend to be a loud mouth in class. I process verbally, so I'm always raising my hand, talking, interjecting, shooting out ideas. So, you know, Gil got to hear me spout off a lot in class. And he found my spouting something that he wanted to dialogue about. Um, and so we started up a friendship, started talking a lot. We were, we were kind of passing ideas back and forth. When we got done with the class, we'd share with each other our papers and what we were thinking. And this was the, the flowering and coming together of all these streams that I was talking about. And Gil was reading my papers about Cranmer and the English Reformation and hearing things that he said as he analyzed and was, had been talking to our clergy about sounded and felt timely for uh, reflection for the Advent. And uh, around this same time, my dad was, was diagnosed with throat cancer, and thankfully he's on the other side of that and okay. But I felt a need that I needed to come to Alabama, where my parents live, up in Gunnersville now, and visit them and just see my dad. And Gil said, well, you know, we've been, we've been processing a lot of this stuff uh, and thinking about how to lean more deeply into our Anglican heritage as Reformation Anglicans and what it means to be gospel-centered in worship, all those things that lit Cranmer's fire, lit the English Reformer's fire. We're, we're processing that stuff more deeply and asking the question of how we can live into our vision and mission more precisely and let the worship that we already engage in come alive even more. And they said, we, what if we, you know, kind of brought you out and we talked with our, our ministers just to sort of consult and talk about worship for a little bit and then uh, you can go and visit your dad. And Advent, I'll tell you, you may not have known this, but that's a huge blessing to me. When you, out of your giving, were able to bring me out, not only to share and to minister to your clergy, now my colleagues, 
but also to be able to go visit my dad when he wasn't doing that well. It was a huge gift several years ago that I, I received from you. Um, and I will cherish that, and I thank you for it. And so I came out, and we had a great discussion. Um, and I'll tell you, God was just starting to do some supernatural things in these conversations. And I felt like, as strange as it was, you know, as a, um, a Presbyterian minister in love with the English Reformation and in love with the, the historic Reformation Anglican project, you know, and coming in, into increased understanding that that's all the streams that led to this particular tradition of Christianity were the streams that lit my own fire and, and brought me into a sort of greater love of God um, were here. And they'd been here for a long time. And I found uh, in your ministers and in your vestry and in other pe- people, people that I wanted to be around, people that I started to feel the Holy Spirit saying, Maybe you're called to minister alongside this congregation and with this congregation and to this congregation and minister to this city. And again, that was just a blindside. I'd never in a million years thought I'd end up here. Um, And consulting and conversations turned into God just saying, I want you here at the Advent. And he brought me here. And I've been here a year. And I can't imagine now being here. Uh, you know, I've been on vacation for several weeks, and I worshipped in three different churches in two different countries, and um, I was so grateful to come home. I was grateful to worship with you, and I found myself just refreshed being here, worshiping with you this morning, um, and hearing these words, hearing the word of God read and preached, and giving and receiving at the table. I just found myself so blessed, and I'm so grateful to be here, and I hope I'm here, uh, maybe, well, I hope I'm here forever. Uh, I just love this place. I love this people. And you know what? In my first year of being at the Advent, um, I knew one of my calls the first year, and, and this next year, and hopefully forever and ever, amen, is to exercise my gift of teaching, and to be able to teach here, and to teach us to live more deeply into what our, uh, our liturgy and our theology helps us to understand and grow in, in worship. Um, and I just found a great connection with you all as we processed the prayer book together this past year. And as I taught, I just, I just saw the same fires that light me start to re- get rekindled or kindle for the first time in some of you. And I will tell you, that just confirmed and affirmed that this is where I'm supposed to be. Um, and so I'm trying hard in this first year, sometimes not doing as good a job as I should, but you're stuck with me now, and I'm stuck with you. Uh, and I'm a sinner, and I've been trying hard to listen well, to listen to what, what makes Advent tick, um, to hopefully not be a pontificator, but someone who is able to teach within a context, but also be taught by you and listen to you well. And I hope that that characterizes my ministry at the Advent uh, for the remaining years, that God would have, my, have me here. And I hope that that's forever. I hope that that's a long time, because I see a work ahead. I see with the rest of your clergy and vestry and the rest of you, a long road, a good road of ministry uh, in our city. And I see a church that's strong, that loves the Lord, that's committed to the scriptures, that loves worshiping, that uh, enjoys one another's company, for goodness sakes, which I've been a part of churches where that's not the case, right? Uh, And so, a pleasure to be here. And um, that hopefully gives you a glimpse into why why I've come here, but we got time for questions, so fire away, and uh, yeah, I look forward to hearing from you.
certainly not the norm. That um, your teenage years. Well, the reason my teenage years were a time of spiritual growth was that God placed in my life godly mentors who modeled for me what mature Christian spirituality looked like and who taught me to love the Lord and who showed me when you read scripture, listen for God's voice and you'll find him. And they taught me just good practices. You know, they taught me the mechanics of what it meant. And that meant a lot. And it also meant a lot that my parents were really committed to one local church. And even despite sometimes my teenage protestations would take me there. You know, and they wouldn't give in to my will, but were as my authority, ones who brought me to church and, uh, you know, caused me to submit. But I mean, ultimately, it's the work of the Holy Spirit just seizing my heart. And um, I find... Because of your student ministers here, a context where that kind of stuff can and will happen, which is increasingly becoming the norm. Because even if churches are kind of doing a work in student ministry, they're oftentimes just interested in entertaining and keeping these kids busy. And I want to be a part of a church that encourages our people to listen for the voice of Jesus in their life, to meditate on the scriptures, to see and savor the gospel, and I'm grateful that Advent is one of those places. Um, and so as a minister, I care deeply about that kind of thing. And I'm watching my eldest son, Joel, emerge into this ministry. So thankful that I'm here. Because I know that he's going to get an experience like I did. He's going to get an experience of being able to watch his parents fumble through their faith and be joined by an army of you who care enough to help raise him. It takes a tribe. And it took a tribe to raise me. Um, but I would describe it, it's Christ Church and that tribe through the, through the power of the Holy Spirit that, that got to me. And I hope that that's the norm at the Advent. Yeah. What was the, what was the process of transitioning from a Presbyterian minister to an Episcopal priest? The process of transitioning as a Presbyterian minister to the Episcopal Church. Um, I moved here <laughs> and talked to the bishop. Um, I'm still currently ordained in, in the denomination I was ordained in, and we're processing all sorts of things right now. It's complicated. It's really complicated. One other question, and has to do with this place in particular, from what I read and hear and experience, is somewhat, or, or not somewhat, considerably different from the body of the Episcopal Church. Yeah. And... What's it going to be like in, in the future if, um, in other words, are you stuck here or uh, could you handle it? In, in your the your questions are my questions, brother. <laughs> um, those are great questions. And honestly, sometimes they keep me up at night. But I also recognize that other people in the course of Christian history and the history of the people of God have been up at night with those same kinds of questions, but have recognized that God clearly called them. And so kind of, I rest secure in the call of God to this place and to you and with you, um, not knowing what the future will hold, but believing in what we're about and believing what God has called us to. And so in a way, it's kind of a ministerial put one foot in front of the other kind of thing. Really excited. And, and the way I sort of discern this call, people talk about internal and external call. There's some clear experiential things in my own life that felt like I'm drawn to this place. But there were also things about this church that felt like you were drawing me. 
uh, and the Spirit was drawing me to this place. And even some of those streams that I talk about coming together, really a part of the way I perceive confirmation of God's call uh, to this place and time. And so, yeah, those questions, I don't fully know how God's going to work out, but I trust Him for it. Uh, and I ask you to pray for me about that. Other questions? Other than the BCP, where would we uh, want to start as far as books go to learn about Cramner? Yeah, great question to learn about. That's a hard question right now because there's lot, lots of information about Cramner, but not everybody tells the same story. Uh, and it's hard to understand, but I'd, I'd point you to a particular scholar who's deeply influenced me and who's no stranger to the Advent. His name's Ashley Null. His last name, N-U-L-L. He's coming in September. I love the man. He changed my life. Um, and he is probably the world's most, uh, world's best authority on Cranmer right now. Why? Because he's studying Cranmer's original manuscripts and learning a ton about who he was and opening up Cranmer scholarship for the first time. So articles and a book that's a little bit thick, but the first chapter is really excellent called Thomas Cranmer's Doctrine of Repentance. Really exposes you to the heart of Cranmer and what he was about in architecting the Book of Common Prayer, and I think what he was about with the Reformation in England. So that's where I'd, I'd start you. And to, I think that book may be in our bookstore, but it's at least on Amazon for a gajillion dollars. So, sorry. <laughs> Oxford University Press. One more question. I just wanted to thank you, really. Just thank you. I'm glad you've been here a year, and you, we take, we've been here a year, too. And... Um, and for the class that you did on the on, on this liturgy and everything, having been brought up years ago in the church, I had no clue about all of that. Mm. So um, I just thank you that you are here and that you have made the step from Florida to here in Hawaii. So we are very grateful that you're here and appreciate Very that. mutual. We appreciate all the staff, actually. Yeah. I don't think that's said enough, that yeah. we actually appreciate all the staff and what they do. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate being here immensely. I'm just so thankful to God that I've been brought here and thankful for you all for supporting me and praying for me and loving my family well and uh, supporting your other clergy and just being a part, being a, a rich, invested part of this place that has had a long history and by God's grace will continue in the, in the, the path and stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us. That's, that's part of why I'm here, is to stand on those shoulders and to move forward. So grace and peace, and we'll see you next week. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.